How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, you all there? In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. There's four people mentioned in this uh, section today that we're going to look at, and we're going to compare and contrast the lives of Mary and Joseph with Augustus and Quirinius. And we can see that they're opposites in every way. Joseph and Mary lived in a humble setting, um, some type of uh, small dwelling. Uh, Quirinius and Augustus lived in palaces. Uh, Joseph and Mary lived in a small town. Augustus and Quirinius ruled big cities. The former lived simply, the latter lived extravagantly. The former poor, the latter rich. The former were not powerful, and the latter were very powerful. The former, Joseph and Mary, were looked down upon because of their ethnicity, and the latter, Augustus and Quirinius, were esteemed because of their ethnicity. And this is how the birth of our Savior, the story of his birth, first begins. If we look just for a second at Caesar Augustus, uh, we can see uh, and learn a few things about him. He comes from the great line of Caesars and was adopted by his granduncle, Julius Caesar, and was groomed to succeed Julius on the throne. His title was Augustus, which means the majestic or the highly revered one. And no, it's not a title he gave himself. He was given it by the Senate in 27 B.C. Overall, he was a fairly gracious ruler, especially compared with other emperors to follow. What about Quirinius? He was a real man who took a real census. They found extra biblical evidence supporting exactly what Luke writes to us. Why is that important? Uh, Luke took pains to make sure the story he's writing to us is accurate. He's concerned about detail and accuracy. And as Luke shows us his accuracy and detail in minute things, then we can trust him that he will be just as accurate in other issues that he deals with. So God, through the hand of Luke, wants us to realize uh, this is a historical reality. Um, Luke didn't say, long ago, in a land far, far away. It's not a myth. It's not a little fairy tale. Luke is saying, hey, look, at this time and place, with these people in positions of authority, here's what was going on. Uh, take Quirinius. This is what we can find about him from sources from back then. 
uh, he came up from a common family and had to work hard um, to work up his way through the ranks. He was a consul in 12 BC, um, showing that Augustus favored him as this was the highest attainable position one could attain. Around the time of Jesus' birth, he won a great battle um, and was given what's called a triumph, usually given to the commander of the army, where the entire day is, is basically a celebration in honor of him. Um, for this one day, the honor confers upon him a divine-like status. And for the rest of his life, he would be called, um, in Latin, a vir triumphalis, a man of triumph. Now, his job as governor was to oversee the area and make sure the people were kept in order. So he enforced the decisions made by Augustus and carried out any wishes or commands by Augustus. So he received the command by Augustus about this census, and his job was to oversee the census in his area of rule. What drove the census? Money and power. Right? Tax everyone and get them to come and give their contribution to the kingdom. Second, power. Find out how many fighting men we have of age so that we can continue to expand the kingdom and be prepared should it be attacked. But what you begin to see in these verses is the dynamic contrast between two worlds. Caesar's world and God's world. Uh, Caesar does his thing, but what we're going to see is God is doing his thing. Now think for a second about Jesus and his birth. This was a Jewish baby who was of no importance to the Romans. They didn't care about the Jews, let alone the babies they were having. He was a small thing to the Romans. He was obscure. Um, think about where he was born. This small little town, good old Bethlehem. And it was just another day just another Jewish baby born, a small baby. But here's the thing. Zechariah tells us in chapter 4, he says, don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. This small baby changed the world. And I think what happens to us sometimes <clears throat> is we can get narrow-sighted and we can get... Uh, we can lose sight of what God's doing. We can see only a couple feet in front of us and miss what God is doing a thousand feet down the road. For about 30 years, Jesus lived in obscurity. He was unknown, unheard of. 30 years, right? We find out he starts his public ministry at about the age of 30. So 30 years, he was in obscurity. Listen, humble beginnings don't mean small endings. Humble beginnings don't mean small endings. Think of King David. He was a shepherd boy, right? A humble beginning, but not a small ending. And God uses humble beginnings. He uses challenging situations. He uses tough life events to mold us, to shape us, to change us, to bring us into a deeper trusting of him, um, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's start in verse 25. 1 Corinthians 1. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you rise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Some of us, maybe many of us, maybe all of us, started with small beginnings. You had humble beginnings. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter your age. Right now, it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your intellect. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter how many degrees you do or don't have. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up in the past. Look, the good news is Jesus is the one who redeems us. And Jesus is the one who uses us. And Jesus is the one who works through us. So <clears throat> I've seen some of the most skilled people I know take a very rough, rudimentary tool and finish a job that me, with the best tools in the world, could never come close to doing the job they did. It's really not up to the tool. It's up to the person who is using the tool. And we are the broken vessels, right? Right? But it's not up to the tool. It's not up to the vessel. It is up to the one who is using the vessel. So if God is the master carpenter, if you will, if he is the great shepherd, if he is the sovereign king, then he can take however broken and messed up we are and come up with a beautiful thing. And he can take that broken and messed up thing and do wonderful and amazing things through it. Are you hearing me? So humble beginnings don't mean small endings. And God uses everything that he brings into our life, if we're trusting him, if we're loving him, if we really love him, if we're really one of his, he uses those things for his glory. So again, it doesn't matter your age or your intellect or your ethnicity or the degrees you do or don't have or what you've done or what you haven't done. It's about God himself. And he is the one that redeems us and takes us and makes us into masterpieces of beauty. So don't despise the day of small things. That's what Zechariah is essentially rebuking the Israelites for in the Old Testament because they saw the temple, the temple when it was rebuilt, and the former people who knew it in its glory were all discouraged. And he's saying, don't despise the small things things. What about, what about this church? This church of about, oh, a hundred of us or so? I mean, what can liberty do? What difference can liberty make? A hundred people in a city of about 80,000, in a county of just under 400,000. Well, think of what God did with Gideon and 300 men. And think of what God did with a shepherd boy and his sling and rocks. God can take the few, and often, when you look through Scripture, he actually wants to take the smallest, the fewest. Why? So that no one can say, man did it. 
So he will often take the lowly, the despised, the broken, the humble, and use them to accomplish things that, from a human point of view, just doesn't even look possible. So guess what? There's great hope for us. There is great hope for us. Here's what Spurgeon said. It is a very great folly to despise the day of small things, for it is usually God's way to begin his great works with small things. We see it every day, for the first dawn of light is but feeble, and yet by and by it grows into the full noontide heat and glory. We know how the early spring comes with its buds of promise, but it takes some time before we get to the beauties of summer or the wealth of autumn. How tiny is the seed that is sown in the garden, yet out of it there comes the lovely flower. How small is the acorn, but how great is the oak that grows up from it. So a big God gives big results. And we serve a big God, amen? And we serve an all-powerful God. Who can stop him? Who can change his ways? Who can stand against him? Look at Romans 8. Starting in verse 38. Now let's start in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us? Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. So listen, God can take your little feeble loaf of bread and your few fishes, and he can multiply it out. And he can take whatever little gifting you have, whatever little talent you have, whatever little treasure you have, and he can multiply it out. Why? Because that's what God does. He takes the little and he transforms it. What do you have to offer the Father? You offer him your measly tiny little loaf, and he will use it. You offer him your measly tiny little fishes, and he'll use it. So there's this contrast between the two worlds. And Luke gives us kind of a quick geopolitical background. Caesar, he's at work, right? Selfishly, hedonistically, making his own plans. But God is at work. First, he sends John the Baptist to prepare the way. Then he finds Mary, this young teenage girl. He could have used anybody. Young teenage Jewish girl. And this teenage boy, Joseph, that Matthew calls just or righteous. So Caesar's doing his work, and God's doing his work. What's Caesar doing? He's exploiting people. He didn't care about the people. They were means to an end, the goal being his pleasure and glory and power. He wants their money. He wants their strength to help him conquer other nations. He could care less about them. But what's God focused on? He's focused on saving people. He loves the people. He cares about the people. He doesn't want to take from the people. He wants to give to the people. And what we see is our sovereign God's plan and rule is higher than the supposed divine Caesar Augustus. How is God sovereign? Through his son, born in a powerful Roman empire to a set of poor parents who are of an ethnic minority looked down upon by the Romans. 
They weren't in Rome. They weren't Roman citizens. What were Mary and Joseph thinking? The scripture doesn't say. But here is this unwed teenage mom, humiliated and embarrassed, likely. But listen, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. They had to trust. We have to trust. Listen, in every situation that you encounter, in every trial that you have, God is working in a thousand ways that you don't know about. So he is omniscient, and he's doing a thousand, probably a million things behind the scenes, doing things, working all of that for his glory, working all of it to mold you and make you into his image. And all those things, you're not going to see that. A lot of the time, you don't ever see that. You won't see it this side of heaven. But if you believe God is working and you trust him, then you know that's what he is doing. And he is interweaving things. And he's taking you from place to place. He's letting things come into your life because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he wants to see you into the image of his son. So we need to trust God right where we're at. We need to trust him in the big things. We need to trust him in the small things. And with this, we need to keep the eternal perspective. The eternal perspective. We've got two worlds here colliding, and we have to keep the eternal perspective. We've got the kingdom of man. We've got the kingdom of God. We don't look to today. We don't look to tomorrow. We don't look to even next week. Okay? God takes the plan of man, Caesar here, and uses it according to his divine will. Where was the Messiah supposed to be born? Bethlehem, right? That's the prophecy. How does God use that? He uses man to accomplish his will. Joseph and I mean, you know, Mary, uh, you know how long that journey was for them? It was like over 100 miles. So she's like in, you know, her whatever, her 38th, 39th week of pregnancy. And most ladies don't even want to go on like a mile hike, let alone 100 miles. <clears throat> So she, she's going on this journey. She's, I mean, she's probably hoping and praying that she doesn't have the baby. And God knows, no, you are going to have the baby. You're fulfilling prophecy. I've got this whole thing set up from the beginning of time. So God takes the plan of man and uses it according to his divine will. Look at Jeremiah 32. In verse 26, this is what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Is there anything God can't accomplish? Is there anything he can't do? Whatever he wills and purposes comes to pass. So we see that the emperor can do whatever he wants, and God's will will still go forth. His plan will still go forth. His purposes will still go forth. For 30 years, from Jesus' birth all the way until his death, you see these kingdoms clashing. They clashed thousands of years before that. They're still clashing. And the Romans represent the kingdom of man. The Pharisees represent the kingdom of man. Jesus represents the kingdom of God. And these worlds finally collide 
Where? On the cross. On the cross. And who wins? We find out three days later, Jesus. God triumphs over the kingdom of man. And Jesus, Jesus, and he alone is the hope for each one of us. Not that you can be a better you, all right? God doesn't want a better you. He wants you conformed to the image of his son. He wants you holy. He doesn't necessarily want you to have a better life. He wants you to have a holy life. And the hope is not in a better you. The hope is not in a better life. Not on this side of heaven. I mean, if that's the hope, you're going to be disappointed. The hope is what Christ did for us. The hope is in the coming kingdom. The hope is in eternal life. The hope is in the throne that we're going to be worshiping before. The hope is in the crown that God gives to each of those who trust in him. That's the hope. See, the, cra- the cross, it, it, it wiped out your sin. It wiped it away. If you're a believer, the, Christ, the cross wiped away your sin. You know what? We go through life struggling, dealing with different things. But the cross took care of our sin. Jesus and Jesus alone took care of our sin. When he was on that cross, sin was put on him, and he took care of it. And only he could take care of it. And because of that, because of that, you can have forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. What is required? Trust. It's trust in Jesus. A turning away of your sins and trusting in Christ. You can do all the works you want. That will not get you any closer to the kingdom of heaven. God says your works are like filthy rags. Salvation comes through Christ alone, through faith alone. You don't have to do anything to be saved except trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in him. And I think sometimes, uh, many of us, me included, we can get earthly, earthly sighted with things, and we lose sight of the kingdom of heaven. And we end up, like 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, it says, now we see in a mirror dimly. And there's kind of an experiential part. We see in a mirror dimly. It's like looking through that um, glass back there that's um, frosted. I mean, we can see what's going on on the other side. We can see the light shining through, um, but it's blurred. And we're, it's like we're trying to look through that and figure out everything that God is doing, and we can see different things going on, but it's not very clear to us this side of heaven. So Paul says we see in a mirror dimly. But guess what? One day, there's not even going to be that mirror. There's not even going to be the glass because we're going to be on the other side. All right? <clears throat> and it's going to be amazing. And it's going to be awesome because we will be with him and we will know fully, as it says, as we are fully known. That is the hope. 
So whatever God has going on in your life, whatever he is doing in your life, wherever you're at, don't ever say, don't ever say that, that you're too small. Listen, God, um, God doesn't have any worthless children. He doesn't have worthless children. He doesn't adopt you into his kingdom, into his family, just to abandon you. So all the worth that you need is not found in some little pop psychology book or some little power of positive thinking or something like that. Um, all that you need, all the worth that you need comes in the fact that if you are a believer, if you are a believer, then God says you are adopted into his family. And you have the best father of all. The best father of all. That puts the best earthly dad to shame. You have the best father of all. And listen, you know, people don't, don't go around adopting people into their family just because they just kind of, oh, you know, wake up. I think I'll adopt somebody today. And there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of prayer. And when they do that, the status of that child the day before the adoption and the day after is drastically different. In the moment of the adoption, they have all the rights and privileges of any family member there. God, if he wanted to use a metaphor or an image or an illustration um, and not give it any worth, then he chose a really bad one. Because the image of child to dad is an image of love and care. It's an image that shows uh, we're not in a distant relationship with God. He is very near to us. He is imminent to us. So all the worth that you ever need comes from the fact that you are adopted into the kingdom. You are a child of God. If you see yourself primarily in any way, it's not a servant, it's not a slave, it's not as even friend, it's as child. That's how you should see yourself primarily in relation to the Father. You are a child. He has adopted you. And with it comes all the rights and privileges of adoption. That is a great blessing. That should help with any feelings of worthlessness. You need to find your comfort, your worth, in the Father alone. Because what Jesus did was open that way for reconciliation to occur. And if you've trusted in Jesus, then the reconciliation, it has occurred. You've been reconciled to the Father. You have a relationship that is, it should, it should blow your mind. It's like it blew my mind when I first got saved, when I first realized the creator of the universe wanted to know me. Of course, he already knew me, right? Because he's omniscient. But he wanted me to know him. And he wanted to have fellowship with me. Not as a fellowship of two guys hanging out and playing foosball, but as a father to a son. And maybe some of us didn't have the greatest fathers. Maybe we didn't have the greatest parents. Well, you have the best father of all available to you. And he can make up for anything lacking in any of your own families. So I encourage you to trust in that father, to go to that father for your worth. Don't seek it in degrees. Don't seek it in money. Don't seek it in a lady 
or man, you will be disappointed if that's where you go for your worth. Years ago, I, I talked with a, a man, um, and I shared with him, I, I, I said, you know, God needs to be number one in your life. And he's not. And he said, my wife is number one in my life. And I said, well, anything that is not God that's number one in your life, that's an idol. He didn't like me saying that. <laughs> well, guess what? His idol ended up failing him. They ended up divorced. Now, God used that to save that man, but he had his hope in the wrong place. He was getting his worth in the wrong place. And God, in his graciousness, will topple idols in your life if you have put them up in place of him. And each of those idols, it'll be like, the Proverbs say, it'll be like gravel in your mouth. It'll be like sawdust in your mouth. It will be gross. Maybe pleasure for a season, but pain for eternity. So we need to knock those idols down. We need to abolish them. So I encourage you, don't despise the day of small things. I encourage you to find your worth in the Father alone. He considers you of an infinite value. Listen, if he's willing to shed the blood of his own son for you, then you are worth it. You have great worth. So trust in this Father. Go to this Father for your worth and seek him. Let's pray.